What's going on, everybody? This is Real Bodybuilding Podcast, episode number 24, and I have a guest here I've been watching for a while that I have a lot of questions for because I haven't figured out his diet yet. Maybe maybe, maybe because I'm slow and I can't figure it out or because uh, there's more that needs to be explained that I haven't caught on to. But Stan, why don't you say hello to everybody? Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, Okay, so I've been doing a lot of lifestyle uh, podcasts where people just tell me what's going on in their life and their family and all that. But you have lots and lots of knowledge on the X's and O's side of things. So I want to get more into the X's and O's and less into the lifestyle. Are you okay with that? Yeah, let's dive in and see if we can help some folks with some real information. Okay. So I do know I, I've watched a lot of the vertical diet. The vertical diet is your diet, correct? That's your, right. Yep. Okay. So I've watched a lot of the uh, vertical diet videos and I've got some of the principles, but I, I'm still trying to find the overarching theme. Like, you know, if you say like the Atkins diet, everybody knows it's no carbs, whatever, whatever. Is there an overarching theme to the vertical diet? Uh, it's probably a few things tied up into one. One, it's highly bioavailable, micronutrient dense, easy to digest foods. That's kind of the, the sum of it. And I, I use it with my clients and I have for many, many years. I just more recently um, named it and brought it to market because of all the requests I had because the athletes that were using it with such great success. But it, it tends to resolve some of the problems that I experienced personally and those of my athletes uh, and things that you and I both have witnessed throughout our careers happening in the, the bodybuilding figure physique bikini industry as well as powerlifting and strongman. Yeah. When dieting, um, particularly women, we tend to over-restrict. We demonize red meat, we demonize fruit, we demonize dairy, we demonize salt. And I think that, uh, well, I don't just think, I've, I've seen and, and it's obvious that these athletes end up with micronutrient deficiencies manifest themselves in all sorts of health problems. They end up with uh, amenorrhea, anemia, thyroid, hypothyroidism, hair loss. Uh, obviously, it comes from iron and B12 deficiencies and iodine deficiencies and uh, dehydration from sodium restriction. And we've witnessed it ever since we've been involved in the business. And it, it, mm-hmm. it's sad. Uh, and I, you know, I've been competing since 86. I've been coaching you know, amateur and professional IFBB, you know, NPC bodybuilders, as well as, uh, you know, uh, athletes in all sports imaginable for over 30 years. And unfortunately, the same diets seem to persist. The egg whites, white fish and broccoli diets. Yeah. Someone can get shredded for a show on that, but it's not healthy. And they'll end up rebounding and having all of those problems. So you're saying the, the main theme that you found and the issue that you found is most people are focusing way too much on the macronutrient profiles and not enough on the micronutrient profiles. Yep. And they're being over-restrictive and they've demonized foods that I think are essential for their health. Okay. So and this is, they would give their body what it needs. I think more better. I think they could get equally as conditioned or better with, with less of the, uh, of the uh, side effects. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm a broken record now because 
Uh, I had Chris Tuttle on, who is a registered dietitian, and I had Mike Dolce on, who's coached a lot of MMA UFC fighters. Yeah, I've done and, a seminar or podcast with Mike. Great. Sorry, you cut out there for a second, Stan. Um, yeah, but both of them also preach the micronutrient dense diet. So let's let's reverse the question. What is not allowed in the vertical diet? You know, the only thing I come out hard against is processed vegetable oils, the three C's and the three S's, canola, cotton seed, um, uh, soybean, sunflower, safflower, and corn oil. Okay. The highly, uh, the ones that are are highly processed, high in omega-6, I think that they're Actually, I think they're the causal reason for much of our cardiovascular disease, heart attack, insulin resistance, I think uh, fatty liver. I think that in the absence of those, and the research is significant, yeah. that shows that, that that's probably the one thing that's necessary to start all of those problems. I know your diet is, you're very, um, you're very big on red meat. So what do you say to the person that says, well, I think heart disease is caused by red meat and the amount of red meat that we're eating in our diets. Well, I think that, that there's no evidence to that effect that's, that's, uh, that's good evidence. And the recent AIM report, the Annals of Internal Medicine, the, um, uh, the uh, review of all the epidemiology and the, and the randomized controlled trials showed that that has been way overblown that the link, the, the link between red meat and any cardiovascular disease or cancer is not supported by science. It's very weak. The World Health Organization used the IARC report, which was epidemiology that was uh, conducted by largely vegan and vegetarian publishing uh, researchers who claim no bias. Uh, and they used only epidemiology, which is highly confounded and biased uh, by the healthy user bias. And they found very little correlatory evidence to begin with, which the AIM uh, research reviewed and found to be uh, very little. Uh, the evidence was poor, and the significance of the evidence was very weak. And then when they analyzed the randomized controlled trials, which IARC did not, uh, IARC did not look at any randomized controlled trials, which is a far superior source of evidence or, or study than epidemiology. Uh, the AIM report suggested that there just wasn't any connection. Can you, can you uh, just, can you, and I'm going to, and this is for myself, not just people listening, but can you explain epidemiology and why that's not superior and what it means? Like just briefly, like what exactly it is? Yeah. Well, when you take large populations of people and you do a prospective cohort study and you ask them what they used to eat using frequency questions which are highly unreliable and then trying to create correlations based on past behaviors without taking into effect uh, other variables such as mm-hmm. healthy user bias people who tend to yeah. eat more meat also tend to smoke more drink more weigh more and exercise less yep. and people who tend to eat less red meat or more vegetables tend to be make healthier decisions overall they tend to, to weigh less and those are much you know exercise more those are much more impactful behaviors lifestyle behaviors than the meat itself. And so um, what's interesting with respect to these, this research, epidemiology in particular, is that this has been studied extensively. And Dr. Ioannidis, 
out of Stanford is the godfather of meta-research, has come out uh, recently within the last few years and published multiple articles stating that the epidemiology is uh, absolutely worthless, that he, he thinks that we should abandon it, uh, and we should look at the randomized controlled trials and create better research. Uh, unfortunately, you know, these kinds of things have been funded to a great degree by um, you know, financially interested parties, such as uh, PETA, who has an agenda, obviously, with respect to animal rights. And then you've got Canola, you've got Kraft. Mm -hmm. uh, Procter & Gamble used the same kind of research back in the 60s and paid millions of dollars to the American Heart Association to get them to promote trans fats. And we see what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just really poor research. And if you take a deeper dive and look at the randomized controlled trials, which is a far superior uh, study, that, and that was what the AIM group, uh, the Animals Internal Medicine Research Study did. They took a, did a meta-analysis of all the randomized controlled trials. And they just found that there, you couldn't find a causal factor and that the, there wasn't even a, a correlation for um, uh, health, uh, you know, negative health impacts from red meat consumption. And, you know, besides all of that, uh, you know, what we're talking about is either a whole foods plant-based choice or a whole foods meat-based choice here. Yeah. We're not yeah. talking about extremes in either direction. I have red meat in my diet, um, but I also have whole eggs, which provide significant amount of nutrients, choline, biotin, vitamin K2. I also have salmon in the diet. I also have dairy in the diet. Uh, all of these things, uh, you know, provide a wide variety of necessary micronutrients. So it's not just, I, I know it's been pinpointed as just red meat and rice, but uh, it's, it's far more than that. Uh, if, if I get the micronutrients in and build a good foundation of, of healthy foods, then if I get a big athlete, somebody who needs more calories and somebody who has more workload, somebody like a CrossFitter, a two-a-day uh, MMA fighter who maybe trains, uh, you know, burns a lot more calories than most people, then I'm going to have to give them more calories. I'm going to have to give them more carbohydrates. And that's kind of where I start building with a little more red meat, a little more white rice. Yeah. But the foundation is, you know, a wide assortment of fruits and vegetables um, and uh, various meats and dairy. So I just think that we've, you know, we, we have to be careful how we pigeonhole uh, we've done it ourselves in the dieting industry by excluding all of those things. We just eat egg whites, white fish, and broccoli. It's embarrassing. So I wonder, I wonder one thing. You, you seem to have like, <laughs> forgive me if this is too harsh, but you seem to have a war on chicken. You're not a fan of chicken. Oh. Well, I think that, that ruminant animals are a superior source of protein, uh, of superior source of food in general. What's a ruminant, what's a ruminant animal? That's going to be uh, an, a four-chambered stomach that helps convert cellulose into nutrients uh, like a cow or bison or lamb or, uh, say, venison deer, uh, like that. All of those, uh, they have a four-chambered stomach instead of a uh, chicken and a turkey. Has a, has a, they're monogastric. They have one stomach. They can't convert cellulose. They can't convert the omega-6s into omega-3s. So no. the fatty acid profile isn't as, as beneficial. Whereas with red meat, plus the red meat is higher, has higher micronutrient density. Iron and B12 in particular are the big ones that, that are significantly higher. And those two are the most important, particularly for women and with respect to iron, because they always end up dieting and getting anemia. Not always, but it, it's, a, it's very prevalent. And they end up at the doctor's office getting a shot for iron and B12. B12 being hugely important for the mitochondria and every cell in the body for energy production. 
And if someone's dieting, then they're generally they're going to experience some sort of uh, slowing of the metabolism and they'll get a little tired. So you have to combat that with things like B12 and iodine for the thyroid and sodium for energy as well and fruit for metabolism. So, you know, I'm really cautious about when I'm dieting somebody that I don't over restrict them because then they get hungry and tired and then they go off the diet. Yeah. That's what's most important. So can I ask you, um, you said that the four chamber stomach has a better, uh, way of converting omega sixes to omega threes. Yes. Okay. So now does that still apply in a grain fed cow? Well, yes, that does apply in a grain fed cow. They will have a slightly higher omega-6 to omega-3 ratio than a grass fed cow. But we have to step back in general terms and say that all cows are grass fed. Some are grain finished. And so it's only a portion. Sorry to interrupt. I have to ask, all cows are grass fed? Correct. They're born and weaned on their mother's milk. They're, They're fed grass throughout a portion of their life and that and finished on grains in some cases in commercial operations. So I didn't know that. Uh, and that, yeah, that is where the, the omega six to omega three conversion is, is not as, as, uh, as good because the foods that they're eating are higher in omega six. So they're eating soy. So if I, uh, cause what I've been told is you have to have a grass fed cow to get the superior amount of omega threes. I actually read the ratio is pretty consider is considerably different. Uh, and the inflammation ratio in a grass-fed cow versus a grain-fed cow. But you're saying most of them are grass-fed anyway, so they're only grain-fed for a portion of their life. So does it really matter if I'm getting – because right now, for example, I ordered like a quarter a quarter cow I, from, yeah. a, from a local farm because I wanted it grass-fed. Is there really a big difference if I just get the gra- – if I get the grain-fed cow at the grocery store? You know, the micronutrients are not different, commercial versus uh, grass-fed, commercial finished or grain finished. Except for the, the, uh, the omegas. But here's another caveat to that. The omega-3 difference, you probably get about a 3 to 1 ratio as fed, maybe a 6 to 1 ratio out of a grain. Finish. That's right. That's right. That's what I read. A chicken is about a, 17, uh, the chicken is about a 17 to 1. Yeah. Pork might be as high as 20 to 25 to 1, and yeah. turkey as well. So in terms of a hierarchy, I would prefer grass-finished. But who can afford? Afford that, so then to grain finished is is better than the next. And I look at this in terms of a good, better, best scenario. It's not good or bad. You yeah. can you can get adequate protein from chicken. You can get protein from any animal source that can yeah. provide you the you know the necessary protein you need. Uh, but I'm trying to go a little deeper. We're in the business of optimization in sports. Can I? I'm sorry. Uh, can, I, I, can I? Can I stop you, Stan? Just because there's so many things we're covering that shoot. I feel like the people watching are going to miss the importance of what we're talking about. So. We're talking about a three to one ratio, a six to one ratio, or a chicken seventeen to one ratio. What we're talking about is an inflammation ratio, right? Like omega three fats are going to help you with your inflammation. Omega sixes are going to probably add to your inflammation if they're too much in the body. Correct. So yes, omega sixes are necessary, but the amount is important. So the reason I stopped you though is I don't know if everybody knows the reason why we don't want inflammation. Most people just consider heart disease and other things like that, but it could also affect our joints and tendons and things like that as well, correct? Yes, and if you want to take a deeper dive into vegetable oils in terms of omega-6s, they are a necessary precursor to a lot of these metabolic syndrome problems. Uh, The studies that were, there's multiple studies, randomized controlled and epidemiology, and in India, 
they did a study of over a health group there did a study of over a million Indian uh, residents of India. In northern India, they tended to eat more animal foods and they had a lower omega-6 intake and they had much lower liver disease, fatty liver disease, okay. even those that were alcoholics. In southern India, the, uh, those people who were alcoholics or drank more alcohol uh, and got higher omega-6s from seed oils in particular, the canola and the cottonseed and, and the corn oils, etc. Uh, they had a much higher incidence of fatty liver disease. So it's so, and this is what some of the research that we're seeing now um, that Tucker Goodrich talks about and Ivor Cummins in great detail, uh, that since seed oils came into the, uh, the diets uh, it's as early as the 1920s. Um, prior to that, we had very little seed oils and we had very little cardiovascular disease. It wasn't even, we didn't even recognize it as a, and, as a problem. Uh, up until the 1940s and 50s when it became very prevalent in our diet. And now, uh, you know, two things have happened over the last 50 years. One, we eat more calories. And two, uh, we eat significantly more, a hundred times more seed oils, up to as much as 30 or 40% of our current diet is from seed oils, these packaged foods, everything that's that you see on the in bags and in boxes in the grocery store is full of canola and corn oil and vegetable oil. So and those are a necessary, it seems, prerequisite for things like, uh, as you mentioned, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, and it all kind of starts in the liver with those seed oils. They become part of your, uh, your cells. Every cell in the body has a lipid bilayer, a fatty membrane, and if it's saturated, they're much less likely to oxidate or oxidize and create free radicals and inflammation, just like you said. When those cells are made up of the seed oils that you consume, because that's how they're utilized okay, in the body, they're stored. Time out for one second. I just, yep. how many bodybuilders are consuming? And I'm gearing this to bodybuilders, so it's probably more of who's listening. How many bodybuilders are eating seed oils? Because I don't eat any seed oils. Like, I mean, all, is olive oil considered a seed oil? No, right? It depends. Olive oil can be up to fifty percent canola oil and still be called olive oil. You got to I mean, the, I mean, if you're, <laughs> I mean, right. if you're, let's say you're getting real olive oil, right? So it's not. But right. how many people do you think are actually eating seed oil still? Because I don't ever see that in any diets. Free contest in a diet, I think it's more limited unless you're eating stuff out of bags or boxes. Yeah. Off season, you're eating pizza, pasta, pancakes. You're going to restaurants. Oh. It's in everything. I, see. I own a, a meal prep company, the Vertical Diet Meal Prep, and we had to source eggs. And you know, nobody cracks eggs anymore, not that, 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 especially in that kind of volume. Yeah. If you go to a Denny's or a IHOP or something and you order up eggs, you get a five-gallon bucket that yeah. is, is egg. That may be cut by as much as 20 or 30% vegetable oil inside oh. the egg already. Whether you cook it in oil or not doesn't matter. The same thing happened with lard. They started yeah. cutting lard with cottonseed oil uh, because it's cheaper and they diluted it. And so you get, uh, obviously, as part of you know, the food that you eat, you get canola oil and corn oil and vegetable oil in it. Look at the labels on just about anything in the grocery store. Go to Whole Foods Market and try and buy a, a hot meal from their display there and look at the ingredients. Canola, corn yeah. oil, it's, it's all over the place. So it's not as prevalent in the dieters. Mm-hmm. But when in the off season gaining weight, and then we talked about who the real problem is, is in your power lifters and strong men and offensive linemen and football, they have to eat a ton of calories to maintain their weight. And they get a lot of those calories from the pizza, pasta, pancakes, yep. uh, spaghetti sauce. It's loaded 
and spaghetti sauce. Uh, you know, we avoid margarines and Crisco now, of course, but um, yeah. it used to be very prevalent that it was in there. So that's, that's kind of where it comes from. It's pervasive. Okay. So I have been looking at this all wrong now because I, when I go to the grocery store, I think to myself, I don't want that grain fed cow. I'm going to get the clean chicken breast. So what you're telling me is by getting the clean chicken breast, I'm actually causing more inflammation in my body than just getting the grain fed cow. I don't want to hyper-focus on the inflammation. Uh, it does have a higher omega-6 count than And, and, it, does, than and it's, it doesn't have any micronutrients that are helping me either. It, it has some micronutrients, but they're not as, in, as abundant or as important, I think, in terms of a hierarchy of micronutrients, in ter- iron and B12 and selenium and zinc in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has many others. Yeah, uh, has some other B vitamin complex, but it's, there's nothing in it that you can't get necessarily from beef in, in with greater, uh, you know, micronutrient benefits. So, and again, good, better, best scenario. You can have chicken in your diet. I just prefer to eat red meat because I think it provides me greater benefits. I like the ruminants. I, I just like optimizing. We're in the one yeah. percent business. So yeah, yeah. Uh, and if even if it's a, a dad bod or a soccer mom on a diet. If you cut out red meat, then you might be minimizing the iron and B12. That's really important for energy, which is one of the biggest reasons that people stop complying with the diet is they get tired or hungry. Yeah. So let me ask you, I want to try and nail this down a little bit. What's, okay. a, what's a day look like? Because I'm still confused. <laughs> so <laughs> help me understand what does a day look like on a vertical diet? What, what am I, take me through some of the, some of the, like if I want to jot down, 10 rules of the vertical diet. Give me, give me the, the most important points. Okay. Well, it's the vertical diet and peak performance. So if you're going to talk about most important points, we've got to start with sleep. And if you've got apnea, get a CPAP. So I'll start oh, there man. and, and we'll, we'll move on. That's a bad uh, one for me. That's a huge one, man. It's life-changing. I, I, blood pressure and everything. I watched a seminar where you said you had your athletes, your powerlifters, sleep in a pitch black room with no windows with earplugs if they had to, because you thought that the darkness of the room and the quietness of the room is, is what got them to sleep so well. Is that true? Or do I, am I remembering Absolutely. That yeah. I have a whole chapter on sleep in the vertical diet ebook where I talk about um, creating an optimum environment and uh, using blackout blinds. So it's, it's pitch black. You don't have light hitting you a uh, quiet room. If you need earplugs, if there's noise, I'm just saying in terms of, of controlling that environment, a cool room, the temperature should be, shouldn't be too warm. You'll have a hard time sleeping. And then, of course, the CPAP for heavy guys with thick necks, you might have a uh, blocking your airway and end up with apnea. And apnea causes a whole host of, of problems, I f- health I find, problems. I find it really interesting that the very first thing you went to is sleep, when a lot of people don't even put that on the fir- in their top three. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. Uh, uh, if you don't get adequate sleep, then you're going to lose more muscle than fat. You're also going to see, we used to think that fat was dormant in the body, but it has its own hormonal uh, complex. It, it releases ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone. Uh, it'll convert testosterone to estrogen at a greater rate when you lose sleep. So there's a whole lot of things that happen hormonally, which you and I both know how important that is. It'll yeah. suppress thyroid function. It'll suppress testosterone in natural athletes, of course. So yeah, sleep's the most critical thing. Uh, it can change the way at which it, it can it can alter your insulin sensitivity. So it's really critical. I've said this: get up at four o'clock in the morning to do cardio after five hours of sleep, but they're stepping over hundred dollar bills to pay. Nick, 
because they'll be burning more muscle than fat and they'll be better off yeah. sleeping because it improves their metabolism. But what if you based on metabolic rate in particular, which. Okay. But that, that's, that's easy to say. And, it, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I keep cutting you off, Stan. I just, there's so no. much, there's so much information and in everything you're saying. I have so many questions. So what if you just can't sleep? Like I have a hard time sleeping. I usually, especially if I'm on a really clean diet, my body will wake me up. Like I'll go to bed at midnight. My body will wake me up at like five or six to eat. Yeah. Give yourself, at least give yourself a fighting chance. Give yourself the opportunity to let your body wake itself up instead of the alarm hitting you and you get up exhausted or the, see the quality is very important as well. Not just the quantity. If you're waking up normally after five or six hours of sleep, so long as the quality of that sleep is good, Mm-hmm. And by, by that, I mean, you're not holding your breath all night because yeah. you've got apnea, yeah. uh, then you, you may get a significant benefit. Obviously, the longer is better because sleep cycles, uh, uh, you know, they have recurring periods. Uh, you go through phases throughout the night and each subsequent phase is longer in REM and stage four, giving you more restorative sleep. And yeah. so when you study athletes, those that, that sleep longer have lower injury rates, they have better performance, they have better cardiovascular fitness. So it, it's pretty critical to try and at least give yourself an opportunity instead of intentionally burning the candle at both ends by staying up late on the iPhone and then setting your alarm for 5 a.m. You might want to try and get to bed by 10, get rid of the iPhone, create an environment that provides you, you know, a, a, an, op, an optimal chance to, to get a quality sleep. Uh, and then not intentionally sacrifice sleep for cardio when you're, it, it's really a net negative is the yeah. point. Do you really think, see, I go to bed with my phone. Like I, I'm usually on my phone and I'm, I'm usually looking at cars or something and I'll pass out. You think that's a horrible way to fall asleep? You think you should put the phone away? <laughs> yeah. Uh, unless you're using some sort of a blue light blocker because that does affect melatonin, which will affect the quality of your sleep and your okay. ability to, to get to sleep. So that the light is significant, whether it be from your TV or your telephone. And then there's a whole lot of stuff now going on about the, um, the EMF, the, uh, the, the, electromagnetic signals uh, that comes from the phones and whether or not that impacts the quality of your sleep because you've got that, uh, that kind of beaming through your, your yeah. room. Some, some people even go so far as to turn off their Wi-Fi so yeah. they don't have those signals going through the house. But I, I, you, know, you can keep going down this rabbit hole as, as deep as you want, but I'm saying give yourself a fighting chance. Yeah. Sleep's really, really important. Yeah. Uh, so for all the so, reasons we discussed. So what is there, is there anything in your ebook that discusses how to use your CPAP or you leave that to the doctors? Because uh, I, have, I do I, have, sorry, I have a CPAP that I bought myself yeah. online and I, I think I said, I don't know if it's set too high or something, but I'm wondering if there's a, is there something in your book that will tell people like how to get their CPAP set up properly? Yeah, I, I have a reference to some articles and some videos in there, but I also uh, discuss the fact that you should get an auto, the newer versions are auto PAPs. Yeah. They interpret your breathing and they can, uh, you know, when you exhale, they'll relieve so they don't keep forcing air. This is very common. If they're uncomfortable, you won't wear them. I recently started working with Lane Johnson, offensive lineman for the Philadelphia Eagles. And the very first thing I did when I flew out there was reprogram his CPAP and get him a new mask because he wasn't wearing it and it was awkward. The ramp feature was was on, so he was sitting there trying to breathe. The first few minutes, he couldn't get enough air because yeah. it was a too low of of, 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 of a, a pressure. Yeah. And then there's something called uh, the expiratory pressure relief. When you exhale, you don't want that thing to keep forcing air into That's your right. face. 
Yeah. That's the way they were back in the nineties. When I first got mine, you felt yeah. like you were driving down the freeway with your window front windshield <laughs> missing. I had, one, I, I had one of those too. <laughs> yeah. They're horrible. So yeah. the new ones, the, you know, there's a dream station, which is one of the best now. That's the one I, that's the one I have. It's awesome. And they have them, they're on walmart.com now for $499 with the um, humidifier. I paid like two grand for mine six yeah. years ago. Yeah. So that's the one I recommend. And then, uh, you know, set the EPR, set the, uh, the expiratory pressure relief, set the ramp feature, and then find a comfortable mask. You might have to use a few different styles until it, it's comfortable for you so you can wear it. But yes, yeah. you're right. There, it does take, uh, everybody's different. And it does take a little bit of learning to get comfortable with the machine. But once you do, uh, it's hard to go without it, knowing that you're going to wake up tired and sore yeah. throat potentially from snoring and eyes all bloodshot. And just imagine, you know, holding your breath half the night. Yeah. And people don't appreciate you. If you put a, um, an oxygen uh, on a detector on your finger and, and look at your blood oxygenation level, which is what they do when you go in and get a sleep study, and you see that start to decline and you realize that your blood is, is limited flowing to your, your, um, your periphery, to your limbs that you've been working out and you're trying to recover from. Yeah. Uh, it becomes pretty compelling to think that there's no oxygen going to your arms and legs. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually terrifying when you put it that way and you think about trying to recover from a workout and not being able to because you're not sleeping right. But it's also the most significant contributor, one of the most significant contributors to high blood pressure. As much okay. as 20 millimeters on the systolic blood pressure can be attributed to sleep apnea. Someone who's hypertensive and salt sensitive, which is a small percentage of the population that eats too much sodium, might have an increase in systolic blood pressure of two to seven millimoles, which is completely eradicated by consumption of adequate potassium. But if you have sleep apnea, you can have an increase in, in systolic blood pressure of 20 millimeters uh, on your systolic blood pressure. That's, that's significant. Yeah. It's interesting that the doctors don't ever say that when you have high blood pressure. They don't, I've never had one doctor point to that first. As yeah, an the issue. next one in line, the next one in line is hypothyroidism. Okay. In women in particular, uh, a, a normal thyroid versus a hypothyroid woman, they can have a 20 millimole difference, millimeter of systolic blood pressure difference uh, just from um, hypothyroidism. So it, there are much more things like taking magnesium, uh, relaxes the blood vessels, and that's great. It's protective of, of you know, endothelial damage, but it can only really adjust the meter by maybe two millimoles of pressure. And we mm -hmm. just said that sodium only for hypertensive people will affect it maybe five millimeters, which, which you can eradicate with 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day, which is, again, part of the foundation of the vertical diet and for that yeah. reason. So those are the most significant contributors. Obviously, you know, performance enhancing drugs will, will contribute as well, but yeah. you, you want to try and mitigate all of the, the things you can control. So you just said something interesting. So you said 4,700 milligrams of potassium will help lower your blood pressure. What if you have somebody with kidney issues? Then you don't. Yeah, okay. that's a very different issue. Okay. Yep. So same with, the, same with protein for that matter. You want to keep protein at a minimum. Um. Okay. Another question. Okay. So we went through sleep. Sleep was the number one thing you said about the vertical diet. That's important. What's number two? Like what's, what are the, what's the second rule of the vertical diet? Well, I think getting a diverse uh, micronutrient dense foundation. I think that you're going to want to, I think everybody should have uh, obviously adequate protein daily. And I think the sources should be varied. I think uh, eggs are very important. Whole eggs in particular, yeah. uh, the, the biotin and the choline, the choline, choline is protective of fatty liver disease. 
and, yeah. and can reverse fatty liver disease. And that's important for our big athletes. Um, also the biotin for women in particular, the ones that are eating egg whites, uh, the avidin and egg whites will rob biotin from the body. Okay. And if you become biotin deficient, that's skin, hair, and nails, along with hypothyroidism, oh. that's when your hair starts falling out. Okay. That's why I don't use egg whites. I'll use a whole egg in, in everyone's diet on both ends of the spectrum and for those reasons. Um, I'll get dairy in daily. Calcium is hugely important, and it's the most absorbable form. Uh, it's what? not just important for bones. It's important for nerve signaling and for muscle contraction. Okay, sorry so to interrupt. I just, ha- I just have to ask. You said you get dairy in. What form of dairy do you eat in your diet? Because I don't like I don't want to drink milk. So what do I do? Yeah, it's going to depend on the individual and their tolerance. Now, uh, this is what I talk about is is uh, whether or not people can tolerate certain foods. I, I look for those things that are easy to digest. If you've got a lactose intolerance and you can't tolerate milk, then you're going to want to try, say, a Greek yogurt. It's much okay. more well tolerated. I eat Greek yogurt. So okay. So you think what what is the micronutrient I'm looking for in dairy? Is there something other than calcium, or is it just calcium? Primarily calcium. I mean, it's vitamin D fortified, of course. There's, uh, it, 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 we just see that it, it's very beneficial and easily to, to absorb. Uh, we also see that, you know, in, in the epidemiology studies with populations, those that consume the most dairy have the, the uh, lowest, uh, the best body composition and the low, least cardiovascular disease. It's, uh, okay. uh, it's, it's healthy for you as well. So I want to include that, particularly for women. It's weird. I think bodybuilders swear off dairy as soon as they figure out it might make them fat or it's not necessary. I, I'm, I'm in that boat too. I'm not saying I'm, I'm better than anybody, but you're saying it's des- definitely necessary for overall function. I think it's very helpful. I think that it's a calorie equation first and foremost. We're going to be honest with ourselves with that. If, if you know, we know this, if, if you want to drink sodas and have cheesecake, as long as you maintain a calorie deficit, you can lose body fat and you yeah. can get ready for a bodybuilding show. I'm t- talking about ways to do it that are healthier. Of course. And probably promote, uh, you know, your metabolism better. Calcium, I don't think people appreciate the performance benefit because it's important for muscle contraction. That's what's huge for uh, calcium's. Know. Yeah. I didn't know the that. Sliding, the sliding filament theory where the um, actin and myosin uh, contract the muscle is triggered by calcium uh, in the uh, tropamine receptor. So as part of the chemistry inside of a muscle contraction, calcium is critical for that. Okay. And so, uh, and people don't appreciate that, that it's more than just bones and for that reason. And again, in moderation within your calorie uh, uh, limits, your ceiling, and, uh, you know, to, to, to meet your macronutrient demands, I think it's better to use foods that provide you additional benefits. So, so dairy's have, in there, eggs are in there, salmon yeah. twice a week. I definitely want to get your EPA and DHA in and salmon twice a week uh, adequately provides you the amount of EPA and DHA that is recommended for general health. And then I'm on to your ruminants. So if question, question, sorry, before you go on question about salmon, what if I take a fish oil every morning that's got a good EPA DHA ratio? Is that the same or no? Sure. I think foods are better because they're going to have more micronutrients in them. Obviously you're going to get, you know, foods have cofactors that, that help with absorbability. They also, um, uh, you know, back in the Linus Pauling era when we were mega dosing antioxidants, thinking that vitamin E and vitamin A was going to make us healthier. You find out that toxicities can be, you can, you can end up getting too much of something because there isn't a cofactor helping mitigate that. I see. Same that with, with, with iron consumption. 
Even calcium supplementation has been shown to increase cardiovascular disease, whereas dairy has been shown to decrease it. Oh, I see what you're saying. So just taking calcium pills is not necessarily going to benefit you, but getting the calcium in a food is beneficial. There's a lot. Yes, there's, there's more uh, vitamins and minerals, more cofactors, and there's less likelihood that you'll uh, end up with some sort of toxicity. I'm okay. trying to, to find, you know, obviously we want to take care of deficiencies, but we don't want to create toxicities. Of course. Too so, little or too much. Okay, so what's after salmon? You went on to ruminoids, I think. Yeah, then I'm into ruminant, uh, and that's, again, the, the bison, the beef, the, the steak, um, the lamb, and your deer, venison, those kinds of things. Depending on, you know, I get people from other countries that don't have access to bison, but they might have access to lamb. Um, so that becomes part of it as well for all the reasons we mentioned in terms of those micronutrients. So yeah. it, it, you need protein. Let's say you're a 200-pound person. You need a gram per pound. It's kind of the general recommendation now to optimize muscle protein synthesis. Uh, so you need 200 grams of protein a day. Uh, if you're getting 7 grams per ounce, you need about 30 ounces of protein a day. Yeah, And uh, if you can get, you know, maybe four eggs is the same as four ounces. You can get two or three servings of dairy. Yeah, uh, That gets you up to seven servings. Um, you get uh, uh, your, um, uh, your fish serving a couple times a week. And then you, you put in maybe three five-ounce servings of, of beef a day. You can substitute one of those as chicken or tuna or sardines or, you know, anything else. We're just talking about satisfying a protein demand. Yeah. And that's a really reasonable, it's, it's a whole foods, it's meat-based certainly, and that, that I think is important for performance and for general health. I know that, that some folks consider uh, whole food vegetable-based to be better for long-term health. Can, can I ask you a question about Go the uh, gram per pound of protein? So that's a kind of a normal statement, but a lot of people are confused on, is that a gram per pound of body weight or a gram per pound of lean body mass? Depends on the individual. If someone's under, say, 15 or 12% body fat, I would go with total okay. body weight. If their BMI is over 30, then I would go with lean body mass. Yeah. Uh, mostly just for retention of that lean body mass while dieting. Yeah. Uh, there's also some variation there, which is important to talk about. The research from the International Society of Sports Nutrition, uh, Jose Antonio, PhD, that, that runs that group, uh, suggests that if you're dieting, if you're especially if you're an active individual, it's exercising and you're on a calorie deficit, you might want to go a little higher to retain muscle tissue. It also helps with satiety and thermic effect of food. So you might go to 1.2 or 1.3 grams per pound if I've you're been that up, individual. I've been up to two grams before, and I don't know if that's bad for you. I, I assume it is, but it, in, nope. a, in a contest it's, prep, I've been up to two. It's not bad for you. And uh, Jose's done the studies at two grams. He's done them at three grams per pound. Okay. And he's found no adverse effects on the kidneys for people with normal, healthy kidney function, not for people who have compromised kidney function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he found that less likely to gain weight on an equivalent number of calories from protein as compared to yeah. the same number of calories from carbohydrates or fat. Yeah. And obviously yeah. the thermic effect of food is a huge component of that because yeah. protein yields you fewer net calories. Uh, but that has been studied extensively in protein. If you're gonna if you're gonna increase a macro on a diet, protein's the one to increase. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, with for satiation. Yeah. Um, and so now the other on the flip side of that now is if you're trying to gain weight. And this yeah. is the mistake I used to make when I was in my teens and, and early twenties. I kept trying to jam down more and more protein. 
Yeah. Well, for the very same reason that we just said, the studies show it's really hard to gain weight on protein. Yeah. And it's satiating, so it's hard to eat enough food. So I actually bring protein down 0.8, 0.7 grams per pound. But I have, but I have a question to, about that. So I agree shoot. with you. I agree with you because the satiation of it. And I also agree with you, it's just harder to eat and all that. But um, what, what would, uh, are, are you worried that the body's composition is going to be way off if somebody's eating like 0.7 grams of protein per pound and the rest is all carbs and fat? Like, are they still going to look good? Because we don't want to just yes. put on random, random weight. We want to put on good weight, obviously. Right. Well, and the, there's a few things to unpack there. One is when you have a calorie surplus, that in itself is muscle sparing. You won't be breaking down muscle tissue for energy as readily as you would at a calorie deficit. Okay. Uh, when you get in, when you're eating more carbohydrates, that provides an additional muscle sparing benefit because that's a, a very usable immediate source of fuel. Now, as for uh, muscle protein synthesis, that 0.7 grams has been proven to provide you all the muscle, all the protein that you need to optimize okay. muscle growth with adequate calorie surplus. Okay. So you're not going to be limiting your potential muscular growth with that uh, decreased protein that you're taking in under those circumstances. And uh, now we're talking about, are you going to gain a lot of fat? Well, here's where folks get a little aggressive about uh, their weight gain as compared to their muscle gain. And they think <laughs> if they put on 10 pounds in a month, that it's eight pounds of muscle and two pounds yeah, of fat. Yeah, yeah. You'd be lucky to put on a couple pounds in a month uh, of muscle uh, yeah. Even as a even as an experienced athlete using yeah. performance enhancing drugs, you have to be a little more conservative. You do want to maintain a, cal- maintain a calorie surplus, but just like with weight loss, the slower the weight loss, the less muscle you lose. Yeah. Uh, the uh, with weight gain, the slower the weight gain, the less fat you gain, and uh, yeah. that's what you have to be careful of on both ends. So use a more modest calorie surplus. And then understand that you're going to have to adjust that surplus over time because when you diet, your metabolism slows. Mm -hmm. When you increase calories, your metabolism speeds up. So the initial calorie surplus will not be a surplus in a week or two or three, depending on how your body ramps up its energy usage. So you'll have to add a few more calories, but do it carefully. Watch the scale. Watch your body composition. Obviously, you need to train. Um, And if you're trying to gain weight, you're much better off using more carbohydrates and more hypertrophy volume to stimulate the muscle growth. Okay. So I want to get into some of the training stuff later, but we got uh, three of the rules so far, but surprisingly most of your micronutrient talk was about protein micronutrients, like like micronutrients that you'd find in proteins. But a lot of times people think micronutrients are thinking vegetables and fruits. So what's the next rule in your diet? Well, one of the things about the protein sources I mentioned is those are, high, those are more highly bioavailable sources of micronutrients. Yep. It's easier to absorb heme iron and your choline and your B12 and uh, those. When you get into vegetables as a micronutrient source, you have to be careful of the anti-nutrients and how absorbable the magnesium and the calcium is in those. What and does, whether or not... What does, what does that mean? What does, what's an anti-nutrient? Vegetables have anti-nutrients that they uh, give off to protect themselves from being eaten. And those anti-nutrients can impair the absorption of the magnesium or calcium that's in uh, and the micronutrients that's in the vegetables. So you're not going to get, it's like a a vitamin A, a carotenoid 
from a carrot isn't going to be absorbed at the same rate as a retinol would be from an animal source of vitamin A. I see. Um, yeah, and the iron's the same thing. A non-heme iron in vegetables isn't going to be absorbed at the same rate as a heme iron from okay. meats. Uh, okay. So all of your animal sources, because they eat the vegetables and they convert those vegetables, the cellulose, into these micronutrients, and you can absorb them easier. Okay. So, uh, so my... I have to say that the vegetables. Sorry, okay. I you there. I still got you there. Yeah, I can hear you. There we go. Go ahead. So I was going to say, so all the vegetables I'm, re- I'm eating are is a waste of time, or like am I no, doing, so- am I doing something wrong, or like what's going on? Not at all. Here's where I, I generally offend people who are, are uh, whole food, vegetable based, and certainly vegans. Uh, is because I make that mention that, that you have to be cautious about what your net result is. It's like when you eat 100 calories of protein, you're only going to get 70 because it's thermic effect of food. And when you eat uh, so many kilograms or micrograms of micronutrients from vegetables, you're not necessarily for all of those. So, uh, and it's important to maintain a good digestive environment with adequate acids so that you can absorb more of those nutrients. But uh, so I am cautious about some of the vegetables. Uh, they aren't bad for you. I'm just saying that they may cause bloating and they may impede absorption of some critical nutrients that went on a calorie deficit and working out hard uh, that you, you may need a lot of. And we, an example of that would be, uh, say, cruciferous vegetables. These are what we call high FODMAP foods, fermentable yeah. oligodiamonosaccharides. They're indigestible. They end up in your large intestine being fermented by uh, bacteria and converted into um, methane. So uh, can you, you name, have to be careful how much of them you eat. Can you name a few of the ones that bodybuilders take in on, on a regular basis? Like what, what Usually we, the cruciferous vegetables, the broccoli, the cauliflower, broccoli, the cauliflower. asparagus. And again, dose dependent, yeah. uh, individualistic. Some people have a, a, a poorer response than others. And how you prepare them, all, through, all those things matter. Okay. So rather than taking a bunch of raw broccoli, like cups of it to try and satisfy your yourself yeah. and ending up with a massive amount of bloating yeah. uh, you get you know you, you try and use a low gas vegetable that's cooked in a smaller amount uh, and you absorb it better and so I use things like spinach cooked spinach uh, yep. uh, 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 some carrots root tubers those are a little easier to digest for your fiber uh, potatoes they do have some resistant starch but if you cook them well enough uh, and they're soft, and you can uh, absorb them better. And they do have an enormous amount of potassium in them, twice yeah. as much as a banana. So I do have vegetables. I do have fruits are really easy to absorb the nutrients from those. Our, okay. our bodies are, are very good with those. And you can get, obviously, a great amount of vitamin C and some other micronutrients from fruits. But they also tend to stimulate uh, the liver and your body temperature and give you energy. So okay. if you're on a carb-restricted diet, I would preferentially choose to throw in some fruits before I would throw in rice because really? it would actually give you a little bit of energy. And also oranges are, are amongst the highest next to potatoes on the satiety index. And so now okay. if you're dieting, uh, you're not as hungry. And again, hunger and energy, the two biggest reasons people suffer on diets. So, And if we can mitigate those two things with some specific choices, I think that's, that's ideal. But people would find it crazy for you to say – have an orange instead of having rice when you're getting ready for a contest. Is that, is yeah, that... The, the, the calories are, well, an orange has more fiber, so you're not going to get quite the net calories as rice. Okay. And if you're talking about being on a diet and the calorie deficit, 
It's also more satiating. It also stimulates metabolism. It raises body temperature. This has been studied on humans and animals. And that's important for your basal metabolic rate, which when you're dieting, you, your, your basal metabolic rate adapts and slows. That's normal. How much it slows depends on what you eat and your exercise and your sleep. And so we try and uh, – now, these are small things, again. This is a good, better, best scenario. You can now, what diet about, on rice. But what about sugar and – what about the sugar from the orange and the – people talk about the glycemic index and the insulin spike and all this. And are, are we, I know. That's, are we maximizing those things by eating an orange over rice? Or is it silly? Well, a few things there. If you're at a calorie deficit, it's silly. This has been studied most extensively was in the diet fits trial out of Stanford where they had over 600 people for a year. They studied and they looked at insulin secretion and body weight and body weight loss on two different diets. One was high carb, one was low carb. And what we find is, is that it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, that's first. Uh, so if you're at a calorie deficit, then you just count the calories and you'll, and insulin will not be a, a uh, uh, will not prevent weight loss and fat loss. Um, I know there's a lot of hype now to the contrary with the keto diet and what have you, but uh, calorie deficit is the driver of that and adequate protein. When you control for calories and protein, where you move fats and carbs don't matter. The fruit is a little different because fructose doesn't raise insulin levels as significantly uh, as, as would a starch. Okay. And so it, it may be even better for people who have blood sugar control issues to be able to get all the benefits of the fruit with the fiber and the, the metabolism and the energy and the vitamin C uh, without as much of the detrimental effects from eating a ton of, uh, say, simpler or empty carbs. So you're telling me, like if I eat a cup of rice, it has like, what, 45 grams of protein or of carbs, uh, 40, 45 grams of carbs in a cup of rice. So are you telling me I'm better off eating 40 to 45 grams of carbs from an orange? I would as part of the foundation because of everything else the orange does for you. Now we have to consider what's your totally carbohydrate demand for the day. I don't want you to fill the entire thing with oranges. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, if you're you know, a guy that has to take in – if you have to take in 4,500 calories or you're a crossfitter or a strongman, Thor eats 10,000 calories a day, he has to take in 1,200 grams of carbs. I'm not feeding that to him in, in potatoes – and oranges, I'm giving him the foundation of micronutrients so he gets the potassium and what have you. The rest of it, he's going to have to eat in white rice. And I do that yeah. because it's easier to digest. And mm-hmm. as you and I both know from bulking in the off season, one of the limiting factors is just your ability to be able to digest all the food without becoming yeah. exhausted and full. So I have to manage that for big athletes because if they start getting a decline in calories, they lose strength and size. Okay, so what I'm getting is then uh, the last rule or one of – I'm not sure if it's the last rule, but the next rule would be it seems like you're fruits over vegetables. I am, yes. Okay, so fruits they're, over they're vegetables. They're easier to digest. I think they provide more energy, and they are micronutrient-dense. I would rather eat fruit. If I could have one piece of fruit with every meal, I would probably never cheat on a diet. Yeah, and another thing is, is they tend potassium and sodium tend to satisfy cravings because generally people get hungry, and those two things are rich. Uh, you know, potassium is rich in fruit. I mentioned that oranges, in particular, are high on the satiety index, so you're not as hungry. Uh, they have fiber in them as well, uh, and. I would have to distinguish between what kind of fruit. Now is when I, again, I go back to the FODMAP menu and I say, I've got to be careful that I don't bloat my athletes. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is individualistic, dose dependent. Um, I go with 
juicy fruits that are like oranges and melons and berries, as opposed to say an apple, which is, you know, yeah. a little high cellulose fiber, yeah. uh, or even a banana. Bananas are, the, they're real hard to digest. Yeah. They're bad for me. I don't, I don't, I don't do well with bananas. You know, and I, I hate doing this. This is the conversation that always ensues. You know, what can't you have and what can you have? I'm just saying that different foods have different impacts on your digestion and performance. Yeah. And let's preferably choose the ones that give us more benefits with less of the, the detriments. And that's yeah. kind of how I break it up. It's, it's a, I, I, I do it with a FODMAP menu uh, in terms of digestibility. Okay. Is there any other rules to the nutrition side or this? Well, we already covered sleep. Is there any other, you know, kind of hard and fast rules to the nutrition side of things with the vertical diet? Particularly with athletes, I want them to salt their meals to taste. The professionals okay. in the industry, Dr. Sandra Godick from the Heat Institute, PhD in thermoregulation and hydration, uh, recommends that, that you know how much of this you need. Uh, I don't believe in restricting sodium for these athletes. I, I've seen it over and over again, and I think yeah. you put people in a really compromised position especially because sodium is sodium chloride or salt is sodium chloride and hydrochloric acid is very important for digestion. So you can even absorb the proteins that you eat and the minerals that you eat. So salt is an important part of the diet. Uh, in the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition and the NSCA both recommend 500 milligrams of sodium before and after training. Okay. And that's going to help with endurance and stamina and performance as well as recovery. Uh, I think you hear John Meadows talk a lot about that recently in terms of getting uh, adequate sugars and sodium. Yep. Uh, para workout before, during, and after it really helps with decreasing DOMS and increasing performance. So yeah. salt's a big part of the diet. Hydration, I should say. Uh, Potassium is a key element to that as well. Yep. And then you can't talk about sodium without talking about iodine. And uh, that's you got to have an iodine source. If, if you got a coach that puts you on a diet and he doesn't know where your iodine is coming from, you better consider it because that's going to significantly where, impact your, th your thyroid function. Where would I get my iodine source? I mean, I know iodine's in salt, obviously. <laughs> You can use iodized salt. Some people are salt snobs and they don't like the bleaching or the, um, the caking agents, the anti-caking agents in salt. I used to think that way too. I, I'm a, a bit of a salt snob. I use Redmond Real Salt because it's from a, uh, an ancient seabed that doesn't have any microplastics in it and, and none of the, the other uh, things. But to be honest, when I, I read the book Bad Food Bible by Dr. Aaron Carroll, uh, he has a YouTube page, Healthcare Triage. He kind of walked through the fact that it's probably more than you need to worry about. I, I think we, we get a little, you know, too particular at times. Yeah. That having been said, if you don't use iodized salt on your food and you choose to use a pink salt or a sea salt and you need to get an iodine source, sea kelp's fine. I use uh, pure cranberry juice has a significant amount of uh, iodine in it. Okay. Just, uh, th three ounces will give you 300% of your daily RDA. Okay. Uh, which is necessary for athletes that are training. It really helps again the reason that you go off a diet is you get tired and hungry and metabolic adaptation is, is, uh, is usually a slowing of the metabolism in your basal metabolic rate. Uh, iodine is critical to thyroid function. Try iodothyronin. And, and if you take thyroid medication to resolve a hypothyroidism, you did not fix your iodine deficiency. And yeah. iodine is important for the immune system, for your digestion. It's in every cell in the body. So okay. get an iodine source. You can use sea kelp if you don't like cranberry juice because of it tastes bad or has calories. It's yeah. another option. The cranberry juice is the easiest one. I mean, three ounces. If you can't burn the calories from three ounces of cranberry juice, and I think you have a problem. So you know what's important. You know what's important to have in this conversation because a lot of people talk about this stuff, and, and they just whether they read it in a book or whatever. You and I have been around a long time. 
And we've tried damn near everything and we know how it feels. I've done all of these diets in in a multitude of different ways. I've done the pizza, pasta, pancakes, gallon of milk a day, blow it up to over 300 pounds diet. Yep. And I've done the over-restrictive egg whites and broccoli and whitefish diet to, to compete in, you know, pro bodybuilding shows. So, and I'm aware of how it affected my body because I got blood tests on a monthly basis for over the last 10 years. I have damn near yeah. 150 blood tests. I can see how it affects my thyroid function, my liver okay. enzymes, my kidney enzymes, my red blood cell count, my HA1C, my blood sugars. I can see how all of these different diets affected me throughout yeah. my career. And when I, did, when I did things like I had a high TSH, I introduced iodine from cranberry juice, and 30 days later, my TSH went down. Okay. It, it's, it's pretty cause and effect. And it's kind of the reason that I do get a little particular about what foods and why, because of its effect on your blood work, as well as I mentioned, uh, your micronutrients, and then your hunger and your energy levels. Yeah. Do you think, so we're switching gears a little bit a lot of people are taking PEDs. A lot of people are taking PEDs for the stage and different drugs for the stage and different peptides and things like that. And are end up with a level of toxicity in their body. Do you think the vertical diet is more likely to help? Cause what, what I've heard is the higher the micronutrients in your body, the less toxicity you'll have in your body. Does that, yes. um, does that comment make sense? It makes sense. It kind of gets us right back to how important the liver is because that's the chemist of the body that has to detoxify all of these things that you're putting in it. Yeah. Uh, don't for one second think that you can do a detox, cleanse, you know, celery shake and yeah. solve these problems. It doesn't work that way. Your yeah. body has its own detox mechanism. It's called a liver and a kidney and hopefully, and also a brain, but hopefully that doesn't get used that way. Yeah. Uh, so healthy liver, first and foremost, and healthy kidneys, obviously. We've had too many friends, you and I both, that we know that have, have suffered damage to their kidneys. It's tragic. The liver can regenerate itself. You've got to keep it healthy. That's why I do the blood test, and I look at the AST and ALT enzymes, and I keep those under control. Yeah. I've noticed when I've used oral uh, drugs such as uh, Dianabol that my AST, ALT enzymes will elevate and uh, that I can get those to come down. I've noticed that fruit helps. Okay. Uh, I, I used like three or four ounces of fruit juice a few times a day and the AST ALT would come down and I would get a better appetite. That was kind of the, the, the immediate effect. Okay. I would notice my Makes appetite sense. would improve. And you know, I know from experience, particularly when I'm powerlifting and I'm heavy and I'm using performance enhancing drugs like Dianabol orals, uh, which are strength drugs that I preferred only to use the last 30 to 40 days before a powerlifting meet, not in the off season. Yeah. But that would affect, that would adversely affect me uh, with, um, with, uh, by raising my liver enzymes and robbing me of my appetite. Okay. So I wanted the appetite back. I could have cared less about my liver, to be honest with you. Yeah. At the time, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was my mentality. You know, yep. you want to be healthy, don't compete. I was there to win. I've been so there. It wasn't like I was trying to be cautious about my liver. I wanted my appetite back. And I noticed yeah. that if I could fix that problem. So I did it with fruit. Tudka and NAC are also two very effective ways I'm going to move a little because I noticed that my uh, my battery just started to go down. I'm going to pop a new one on here, but I'll keep talking while we walk if that's fine with you. Yeah, it's totally fine. Um, so Tudka and NAC, T-U-D-C-A and NAC, N-acetylcysteine, yep. two very important uh, supplements that you should take, everyone should take if they're on performance enhancing drugs, and get a blood test to see what your AST, ALT enzymes look like. Understanding that if you get a blood test within a day or two of a workout, 
your ASTALT enzymes are going to be uh, artificially elevated, and it's not from poor liver function. It's from muscle tissue breakdown. Okay. So I have a chapter on that in the diet as well, where I talk about um, you know the importance of knowing the difference. So how so, long how long do you think somebody should take off before they go get blood work done? Um, well, I think people should get blood work done all the time. No, I, no, no. I, I mean, just, no. I mean, like let's let's say I want to get blood. Work oh, done. I would do seventy two hours. Seventy two hours, no no training. Yeah, and the last workout shouldn't be. Uh, uh, deadlifting or squatting because you're, <laughs> yeah. it'll cause more delayed onset muscle yeah. soreness. And for that matter, it shouldn't be jogging a 10K. If yeah. you jog a 10K and then get a blood test on the next day, your creatinine levels are going to be high and your liver enzymes are going to be high. Oh, damn. Was I covering the, the <laughs> video the whole time with my hand? <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. <clears throat> I'm yeah. terrible. I would have so let you know. Hopefully, hopefully this thing works. No, no. It's um, good. I probably should just grab an extra plug. So, you know, that's really important. I don't want to belabor that, that too much, but it's such a critical piece. Uh, and again, that's why, uh, you know, a lot of foods that I eat are intended to optimize liver function. Okay. Because that's the first and foremost. So can I, I can also I, think that, go ahead. Sorry, I want to, I want to, one more thing about liver. I want to ask you, I've, I've talked to a few friends that are, uh, I'd say more on the health side of things. And they think that a lot of the distended bellies and a lot of the bloated guts that we see are directly related to poor, poor liver function. That if somebody can get their, if somebody get their liver clean and and functioning properly, the bloating will disappear. Bingo. That was the second thing I was going to say. Vegetable oils uh, can cause fatty liver disease. Okay. So immediately I eliminate all vegetable oils and get choline into the system because choline can help with fatty liver disease. One of the things that fatty liver disease causes is an accumulation of visceral fat throughout your organ area because your liver isn't able to process that fat as well. Okay. So you're, And once your liver accumulates fat, now your insulin resistance is – that's mm-hmm. a precursor to insulin resistance and your nutrient partitioning. So I think it's visceral adiposity that's probably predicated by uh, the vegetable oils and liver disease, you know, the cirrhosis of, of the liver, the non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease – I think all that's a huge contributor. So, I see people go ahead. Sorry. I just, so let's say we don't have any, any vegetable oils. Like I, let's say I'm not eating any vegetable oils or anything in my diet and people know, know I have a gut and I'm always trying to work on bringing my waist down. If I, since I eliminate those things, how, what's the fastest way to reverse a fatty liver? Weight loss, losing about 7% of total body weight. When I worked with Hofthor three years ago, he reached out to me and said he was getting fatter. He wasn't getting stronger. We took about 40 pounds off of him, brought him down from 435 down to about 390-ish. Yeah. Uh, and during that time, you know, we, we did a blood test. We found out he wasn't using his CPAP. He had a vitamin D deficiency, which is huge for blood sugars as well. Okay. Uh, if you're deficient in vitamin D, it, it's proportion or, or related to insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. So... Uh, and then we, of course, got choline in him. We started making sure that he was getting choline in B12 so that he could help heal the fatty liver. But weight loss is the key. It, one of the things that's important to notice about that uh, is that guys like you and me, we diet down a couple times a year to compete. Yeah. So we're resensitizing our body. Yeah. The, the power lifters and the strongmen I work with don't do that. Okay. And my recommendation is that they do. You and I know from experience from the rebound effect. We count on that. 
Yeah. You diet down and get shredded. You intentionally take advantage of that 30 days following the show to try and put on as much muscle memory and additional muscle. We don't want to be what we weighed when we started dieting. We want to be yeah. five or 10 pounds heavier. That's right. Yeah. And we've utilized that slingshot method throughout our career to get bigger and bigger. You might get to 240 and diet down to 200. Then you go back to 250, diet down to 210. Then you go back to 260, diet down to 220. Yeah. You do that through resensitization and that slingshot effect uh, following a show where you're, it just seems like you can't build. Eventually that tops out and you yeah. reach a new plateau and you got to be like, hey, I'm, I'm getting a little fat now, time to stop. <laughs> but, but my powerlifting meat deck buddies, they don't do that. They stay big all year That's round right. and they don't realize that that impairs their long-term ability to get bigger and stronger. And so Thor listened, he dieted down take one step back and then we slingshotted him back up to over 450 pounds and he had a significant increase in his strength as well. I see. So that's an important thing I think that everybody should implement a couple times a year. So those of you who don't, those of, uh, of you out there that don't know Stan, you were one of the, you are the strongest power bodybuilder alive uh, as far as their, your lifts go that we've seen. Um, I want to, I won that little, world's strongest pro bodybuilder competition that's the right that's, that's I've right been writing that i've been writing that title uh, to its <laughs> death but uh there's well, some other freaks out there larry wheels is one that's uh, eclipsed my well he's not he's uh, not a pro he's not a pro yet record, at least one of my records yeah but he's not a pro yet so he's still <laughs> great, got that yeah great. um but you also had world records in powerlifting too you also had pro world records in powerlifting too correct yes so what I want to ask you is this. Yes, yes, I did. Your, your health consciousness, I'm going to assume, and tell me if I'm wrong, I'm going to assume that when you were competing, your PED use was along the same lines as everybody else and you weren't as concerned health-wise, or were you always this health conscious? I was always pretty concerned. I watched an interview of Dorian Yates talking about uh, PED use back in the late 80s and early 90s. And I didn't know back then because, you know, you don't have access to all these people back then. But it was real similar back then. I would, you would use a cc a week of testosterone. Yeah. And if you went to two cc's a week, you thought it was a really huge deal. Really? And I was using – that's the way I was back in the, in the late 80s and early 90s when I was competing in bodybuilding and powerlifting. Yeah. Matter of fact, in 1995, I had been training for damn near 10 years before I got strong enough to compete in a powerlifting competition and big enough. Uh, I finally competed in a powerlifting competition. I was using two cc's of Sustin on a week, and I totaled over 2,000 pounds in a meet, and I was damn near 300 pounds at the time. You know no one's going to believe so, that. No one's going to believe that, his, right? Historically... <laughs> I know. Well, I, I, I believe you. I was glad Dorian talked about it. How? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say that, that uh, you know, when I came back to bodybuilding in, in the late 90s, I took uh, 10 years off from 1997 to 2006. Uh, and when I came back, I progressively started using a little more and a little more and a little more because the prevailing wisdom at the time was yeah. the more is better. Yeah. And you yeah. had people, you know, talking about their dosage protocols and you were like, wow, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So I did work up at one point when I was, when I did the world's strongest pro bodybuilder, as a matter of fact, I was, I was pulling out all the stops. I wanted to be as, yeah. as huge as possible. Yeah. So I was using significantly more and I gained a lot of weight. My blood work looked terrible. I wasn't any stronger than I was 
when yeah. I was 305 at the world's strongest pro bodybuilder, I wasn't any stronger than when I was 272 at when I set my word in powerlifting a year earlier. Yeah. Do you think that kind of convinced me that, that the, the adverse. Sorry, sorry, Stan, we have a little bit of a delay because of their, our connection. Um, I wanted to ask you though, um, the, the prevent, like the, some of the newer thought process with thought processes with PEDs are, I just had somebody on the podcast recently, a couple of weeks ago that says take less and get more out of it instead of taking more and just kind of making your body feel worse, but not getting any more actual performance out of it. Yeah, I experienced that very same thing. I got more side effects, but I didn't get more strength. I was stronger at 272 using half the gear as I did at, as I was at 305 using twice the gear. I'll say this that I think is really important. When dieting for a bodybuilding show, you don't need a lot of gear. Yeah. You're not at a calorie surplus. You're not going to be gaining any muscle as an experienced lifter. You're not gaining muscle. You need to hold on to muscle. That can be done with very little stuff. See. And the adverse effects from trying to load up too much stuff, the estrogen conversion, the water retention, the, the liver problems, the adverse effects from trying to load up on too much, for muscle, you're not even going to gain. You won't yeah. gain it at a calorie deficit. You might see, gain I, some water. Water isn't muscle. Yeah, but you see, I don't my my thought process is always i'm not trying to gain while i'm in a deficit but i'm trying to maintain whatever i have so i thought if i did more i would be able to keep more of my muscle while i was on that in that calorie deficit and i think that's the biggest point i'm trying to make it doesn't yeah. take much to keep muscle Okay. You've got, you know, burn patients and age patients using two milligrams of anna and a little bit of growth hormone and they're gaining muscle. They're not muscle wasting. I'm saying it doesn't take much yeah. to hold on to the muscle. And so my point is, is that there's a bigger downside to more stuff with the water retention and estrogen conversion and the prolactin increase and everything else, much bigger downside to more stuff. And I don't think more upside. And this is equally prevalent to me when I trained Flex Wheeler uh, uh, getting ready for the, uh, to, for my pro card. And he had me using, uh, are we still live there? I, I lost you for a second, but you come back. So you were talking about when you were working with Flex Wheeler. I want to make sure the video is going to. Yeah, there you are. Okay. Sorry. So when I worked with Flex Wheeler, Flex was really conservative with the dosage that we used. And, uh, you know, I wanted to use more. He suggested I don't. He said that he didn't think it would would cause me more problems than it solved. So I did 100 milligrams of test propanate every other day. I did 100 milligrams of Masteron every other day. I did half a cc of uh, Tren every other day, which at the time was 37.5 milligrams. And I did 50 milligrams of Winstrol a day. And I did uh, two IUs of GH five days a week, Monday through Friday. Okay. And that was my entire protocol. Uh, I tried a little bit of clenbuterol, but it made my heart rate so fast. I couldn't finish the workouts. I was hyperventilating and, okay. and I wasn't able to, to train. So I, I got off of that. 
<laughs> and uh, and that was that was it. That's what my uh, me and Keith Williams both we were we were living together and training together, and that's what we our protocol. That was the best I ever looked, and that was the least really? gear I ever looked used getting ready for a show. I tried more subsequent to that. I looked worse. What what made you decide when you decided to retire from professional bodybuilding? What was it? Was it just you kind of had enough, or why? What, how how did you make that decision? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I don't think I was getting better. I was 45, you know, so yeah. I, I I was just not getting better. I wasn't able to put on the mask. The best I ever looked was with Flex in 2009, and then I started powerlifting more often. Yeah. And I don't think powerlifting is very good for bodybuilding. No. It made my legs smaller. It made my waist bigger. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a good look, and I kept, you know, I kept powerlifting, and I, I should have picked one or the other, and eventually I just kind of backed off of bodybuilding and, and powerlifted a little more uh, year-round, and I was able to actually improve at powerlifting. Yeah. So you coach bodybuilders and powerlifters, right? Yeah, men and women both, and professional athletes as well. I, I really take on a, a number, a variety of clients. So can I ask you one of the most common questions I get uh, almost on a daily basis? And I don't even have the answer, so I don't know why people ask yeah. me, but what's the best way if, as a coach, if you, can, if you had somebody, let's say you had a powerlifter who had a thicker waist from powerlifting, what would be the best way for you to bring that down? Boy, it's you really. It's a host of things. Like I think part of the, if it's muscle, there's not a lot you can do with it. Um, if it's drug use, such as insulin and growth hormone, coupled with high carbohydrate intake, yeah, uh, because those receptors are on the on the the IGF one receptors are on the intestines, and you start sucking down a ton of carbohydrates. Yeah. We see this with some some names that we're both familiar with that eat ten thousand calories a day, and they end up with yeah. huge bloated distension. Yeah. Um, as much as I hate lowering carbohydrates, because I think you lose a lot of energy and strength and size, for somebody who had a compromised midsection, I would, I would need to do that. I would need yeah. to, to de decrease the amount of rice that they ate. Um, I think that that, that goes uh, you know, primarily to the, to the midsection, to the intestines. So I'd have to get their blood sugars really under control. And I would do that with all those methods that we mentioned. Uh, I also implement 10-minute walks after every meal. It's twice as effective as metformin for decreasing I was gonna, blood sugars. I was going to ask you that. So you do these 10-minute, what are they called, 10-minute rhino walks or what are they called? Yeah, 10 talks, 10-minute walks. 10, 10, 10 talks, that's right. So what is that just a digestion tactic or what exactly is the premise behind it? I'm glad you asked. It's a host of things. Uh, for the average population, it's sustainable. And anytime you yeah. assign a, a typical person 40 minutes on the treadmill, they're not doing that for any period yeah. of time. Yeah. 10 minute walk, you can do anytime, anywhere, you know, airport, around a hotel, it doesn't matter when I'm traveling in the morning uh, before bed. Um, but it, it serves a number of purposes. First and foremost, insulin sensitivity and digestion. Uh, it's been proven in research, in human research, that it's twice as effective as metformin for blood sugar control and for staving off type 2 diabetes. And so okay. it's, it's really critical in how it, it, uh, it takes blood sugars out of the bloodstream and puts them into the muscle without the need of insulin. Yeah. Uh, so that's important. Digestion's huge. When you move more, um, then uh, it improves the digestion of that particular meal. Uh, I think you noticed recently maybe uh, Dexter Jackson was doing some, some step mill and people were asking him, why are you doing that? And they, you know, you're the blade. You don't need cardio. 
Yeah. He said he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it for cardio, for weight loss. He does it for appetite. Uh, and that's one of the big reasons I use it with my big athletes is like yeah. off Thor. He has to eat so many calories. If he does a 10 minute walk, or in his case, he has a bike in the garage in Iceland. And after he eats, he'll go on and ride the bike for 10 minutes. Yeah. It dramatically improves his digestion and he's hungry again in three hours when he needs to be to eat another meal. So, so, so you're saying this is actually pretty fascinating to me because I'm like, okay, I, I didn't know the extent of how good it was for you. I thought, I understood the digestion part, but I didn't understand it was as important as, as good as metformin or anything like that. So I have a treadmill here in front of my desk. So you're telling me if every time I eat, I jump out and walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes at like a moderate pace, like two and a half. Yeah. And, that, and that's going to help me if I, if I'm digesting my food and the carbs are going to the muscle then I'm probably going to perform better. I'm probably going to be leaner and I'm probably going to feel better. Is that all pretty accurate? A hundred percent. And there's wow. tons of research to support it. Frequency is more important than duration. So the okay. three times a day is much better than once a day. Okay. Uh, again, twice as effective as metformin. It's really, really helpful. I, I recommend it. And a matter of fact, I worked with Nadia Wyatt who took third in the figure in the Olympia this year, yeah. second in the Arnold. Okay. Um, she didn't do any extended steady state cardio. She did three 10 minute walks a day. That's really impressive. And, uh, yeah. And I work with um, Stephanie Sanzo, the influencer out of Australia, real popular fitness influencer. Mm. And uh, she used to do the, the steady state 40 minute, 4 a.m., you know, yeah. <laughs> fasted cardio. <laughs> yeah. And she had all the associated problems. She had the low thyroid. She had a lot of trouble with IBS and all sorts of different, uh, uh, you know, being tired and, and the like. She hasn't done more than the 10 minute walks in the last two years that I've been working with her. And what, I, just, I just want to nail this down because I'm going to steal this from you and tell my clients to start doing it. So <laughs> I'll give you credit though. Don't worry. But yeah, um, I, I didn't invent it. I've just, I just tried it. I'll take you back a little bit, bit to, sh to show you how important it was for me. This isn't something that came up yesterday or last week. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years ago when I was competing in powerlifting with Mark Bell, I would get done with a big squat session on a Sunday and, you know, we'd be squatting 800 plus pounds yeah. Yeah. on Monday. I would lay around in bed all day and sleeping and trying to recover. And I found that I was just sore Tuesday, Wednesday. I was just sore all damn time. Yeah. Uh, at the, and how I came across it at the time, but uh, I went and got a recumbent bike and put it in my hotel room. And the following Monday after squats, I rode, I did a little hit session on my recumbent bike. I did 30 seconds of, of fast sprinting under tension, 30 second rest. I did 10 of those, just 10 minutes, but I did it three times that day. Yeah. Tuesday, I woke up, I felt amazing. I did not have the DOMS. I felt incredible. My appetite was better and I was having to eat a lot of calories at the time. And I noticed I was able to eat more. I was hungrier more often. Yeah. So that kind of is the, is where it came from. But does it have to be a hit session or can it just be a normal walk? It's, it wasn't hit per se. I would just do 30 seconds kind of briskly under tension yeah. and then rest for 30 seconds. Yeah. One of the big reasons I did the, the, the modest the hit, it's, it's all concentric. I was doing no eccentric loading. There was no you know, uh, muscle damage being done. I was pumping tons and tons of blood into my yeah. legs. Yeah. So my knees got better and my muscles recovered faster. Wow. So that was kind of the, the, the reason why I did the bike at the time was to recover from workouts. A walk is certainly significant enough for the insulin sensitivity, and uh, uh, it also satisfies uh, 
the cardiovascular fitness demands. If you measure that in terms of VO2 max and look at, at the METs, the metabolic equivalents, a brisk walk can get you up to seven METs, which is uh, probably all you need for any measurable effect for health, for longevity and, and quality of life. So it, it can certainly satisfy that as well. It doesn't need to be more aggressive. All right. I'm going to start doing three 10 minute walks a day instead of my steady state in the morning. And I'm going to report back in like two or three weeks. How long do I need to see before I see results? Four weeks, maybe you'll, you'll feel better in a week. I promise you it's life changing. Right. I'm going to, I'm going like to let that. everybody know. I'm going to let everybody know yeah. in a week how I feel. Um, yeah, great. you did say something though, that kind of just came out and I won't keep you much longer cause we've been on for a while, but I, I've always no been worries. really, always been really curious about this with power lifters. So you said you're squatting 800 pounds. I can't imagine walking out with 800 pounds on my back. How does that, how do you get there and not have any fear of tears or knee injuries or anything like, how does that happen? And just, how are you able to eliminate the fear aspect? Well, so much there. One, I didn't walk out. I used a monolift. Okay. Well, still, <laughs> it's still, still impressive. <laughs> there's, there's a big difference. Uh, and yeah. I'm, I'm quick to, to notice that, uh, to, rec- to recognize that, that the, the walkout itself is a complete, is another event all to itself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've seen some pretty hairy things happen over the years, but, uh, just getting under that load and squatting it. Yeah. Probably one of the reasons that I quit powerlifting when I was 45 okay. was because, uh, over time you, you start to get, those those fears in your head about whether or not you're coming back up or something's going to explode yeah. or break or a knee's going to pop off and yeah. you start seeing accidents on YouTube and, and <laughs> it, when that becomes the prevailing thought when you go to get under the bar and not getting injured becomes the prevailing thought it's probably time to quit before that I was you know I was interested the wall I got this I'm I'm going to kill this as soon as you go from I'm going to smash this so I hope I don't get hurt then uh, it's probably time to hang it up I, I managed to get in and out without any surgeries and I'm happy about that I I had plenty of, uh, you know, torn muscle here and tendonitis there that yeah. I've since uh, re- recovered from. Uh, but it, it was uh, it, it was quite a challenge, let's say. It's interesting that you say that. I've never been – I'm not going to sit here and brag about weights because I'm talking to one of the strongest people in the world. But I used to sit down on the leg press when I was younger, and I'd have like 15 plates on there, and I'd have like an Olympic yeah. bar, an Olympic bar through the middle, and that one loaded as well. and people would be like, how do you do that and not be scared? And I was like, if I'm not a little scared, then it's not heavy enough. Yeah. But I always felt like it was going to go no matter what. Like I was going to get through the weight no matter what. But now, yeah. now if I put like 10 plates on, I'm like, careful, don't hurt yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if I should, you know, you're saying that's when you should hang it up. And part of me kind of agrees with you because it's, it's kind of a shitty feeling being scared to do things you know you used to do so easily. Yeah, I think that's what lends itself to the transition from uh, the amount of weight you use to the mind-muscle connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you so think, now that's all I talk about. Do you think you can still maintain or grow muscle without those heavy, heavy poundages? Let's say, yeah, let's say for me, like I've already built the base. Do you think I can grow the base or at least keep the base without going heavy or – same thing applies for a new guy. If there's somebody new in their lifting, can they get huge without lifting those heavy pounds? Yeah. And and that's what the science has shown us now that the, the, you know, when you look at Brad Schoenfeld's work and Brad Contreras and the, uh, you know, all the, the studies that have been, been, have been done now, you can grow just as much muscle using uh, 
a heavy weight for five reps as you can a medium weight for 10 as you can a lightweight for 20 so long as you go within a rep or two of failure that seems to be just maximum muscle fiber recruitment so uh, so the key to the statement though is failure the key to the statement is within a rep or two of failure not okay. necessarily failure yeah, but, failure but you're taking it yeah yeah, you, you, if you're doing 10 reps and you could have done 20, the likelihood you're going to grow is pretty slim. Yeah. You, you do need to, you know, take your body somewhere it hasn't been before and progressively increase that weight over time yeah. uh, or create a different stimulus, uh, you know, with a variation of the exercise or a change in the rest periods or the, the uh, frequency and volume of training. So there's a bunch, a bunch of variables you can apply, but the fact of the matter is, is you do not need heavy weights. When I trained with Flex, he wouldn't let me squat, deadlift, or bench press for over four months. Okay. Um, and I was concerned, but I was incline pressing, if you've seen my videos, 200-pound dumbbells for reps. Wow. And Flex would never let me go over. I don't think I went over 110 the whole time I worked with him, but he would pre-exhaust. We would go slower. We I get would it. focus on just the chest. You know, we, would recruit, we wouldn't be recruiting uh, all the different muscles. And on leg press, my feet would have to be in and down instead of high and wide. Yeah. I didn't want to throw the weight on my glutes. So he wanted to keep it on my quads. So yeah. really what you do is you start, uh, you know, isolating muscle groups and doing more mind-muscle connection and, and pre-exhaustion. And, um, but yes, uh, and I was, the, I was the fullest I had ever been. I was yeah. bigger than the year before and bigger than the year after because yeah. Flex made me train that way. I trained smart for hypertrophy. Okay. I want to ask one more question before you go, and I probably should ask this in the very beginning. Did you, is this all self-taught or did you go to school for, because you seem extremely knowledgeable on the whole, on everything nutrition. So yeah, this... I studied exercise science at the university of Oregon. So okay. I do have a bachelor's of science degree. It was in psychology. And then I re-enrolled and I spent two years in their exercise science program, about 10 credits short of the master's there. But mm. I studied, uh, you know, biology and physiology and kines and I digested or uh, I dissected cadavers for a year. Uh, you know, I took, um, uh, statistics and calculus. So uh, I'm, I am familiar with the literature. And then I, I just, I read everything you can imagine. Yeah. And obviously from personal experience and the blood test, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I've become a member to mass research review, Alan Aragon's paperwork. I read all of, uh, you know, I mentioned Brad Schoenfeld and Brett Contreras. Um, I just, I'm just a voracious reader of this information yeah. and i've worked with damn near every guru in the business i worked with flex i worked with yeah. charles glass i worked with dave palumbo you know eddie Cohn, mark bell yeah uh, a lot of great coaches over the year that i learned a lot from you said you studied a little bit of psychology does that help you when you're dealing with crazy athletes i think so i think you have to be patient i think <laughs> compliance is the science and i i mentioned that that uh, you know helping people with their hunger and their energy is probably more important than everything else yeah. Um, I want to have you on again, if you have time in the future, because there's a whole business side to your lifestyle that I really want to get into, because I know you've been very successful in many different businesses and I'm extremely interested in that, but, awesome. I, we, yeah. but we, we've been on for like an hour and a half, so I don't want to just keep you, but if you would come on another time, we can get into more of that personal lifestyle side. Of course, brother. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Is there anything you want to uh, pitch or portray or promote before we go? Well, you know, I've got the vertical diet ebook at stanefforting.com and also the meal prep company. I, I provide meals nationwide, the world's strongest monster mash right to your door. So that's at stanefforting.com for the vertical diet meals. Does that's that come a new to new business venture? Does that come to Canada too? 
you, we do have Canada. I'm going to send you some. Thanks for, for reminding me. I'm <laughs> okay. going to send you some Monster Mash. Yeah. Okay. What's in the Monster awesome. Mash? What's in the Monster Mash again? Uh, it's ground beef and rice made with bone broth and uh, scrambled eggs, and we throw in a little spinach and peppers if you like the, the, the deluxe version. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'd, I'd like to yeah. try that. <laughs> it's great, man. Um, okay, I really, really appreciate the time, Stan. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll uh, we'll get this up as soon as possible, and uh, I hope everybody checks out your ebook. All right, brother. Good talking to you. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. Bye now. Bye bye.